Welcome to Classical Etc., a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. And on today's episode, we're talking about objectionable content. If that doesn't keep you listening, I don't know what will. <laughs> but before we get there, it's been a while since I've seen y'all. So I wanted to ask, are you reading anything new right now? I'm not. I actually um, have been dealing with new pigs, getting ready for the spring and <laughs> the farm, you know? And so it just, I've, I have um, lost some of my impetus, you know, I, you have less time. You don't, you're mortal. That. But the one thing I will say, I just started reading this weekend, picked up the fellowship of the ring again to start reading that because Lilo wants to talk about it with some people and having that, I, I felt like, Having that weight of having a group of people that were expecting me to read a book is very good for getting me back in the rhythm. So when I fall out of rhythm because of life, that that does help me get back into it. So I'm grateful for that. You you said you had a spiel about not reading. Well, that is my spiel. I didn't oh. read for like two weeks, three weeks, and then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I need to start reading again. Huh. Because, because because I Lee have, is because, standing over you. Yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah. Well, Lee and Mitchell and yeah. Tanya and everybody else. Mm, I haven't started it. I gave it to Dave. Well, and Michelle, Michelle's surrogate. on 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 me about the talisman, so I haven't oh, yes. started that one. I haven't started, but that but one. the deadlines for both books are the same day, so I was like, I guess. Oh, wow. you got some reading to do. They are the same, same day. day. Yeah. Well, every so, time I talk to Lee about the Fellowship of the Ring, which she really wants to just have this discussion, this is truly um, to help her with her Princess and the Goblin book club during the conference. Hmm. Um. She just wants to really kind of revisit Tolkien and just need some friends to help her. And so this she keeps I keep saying, yes, so this many people have signed up because I got the books for everybody and I've given books to these people. And she, every time she says, and you <laughs> and you. <laughs> but community, I mean, that's the thing, right? So Lee needs help. So she's created yeah, this community. Yeah. And I just find that when, you know, I Sometimes I'll get into a good rhythm of reading. Sometimes I fall out of it. And it's typically the community that gets me back into it. So, Tony, you're, you've told us before that your kind of reading habit is to just read at your chair, you know, for a certain amount of time every morning. So, do you yeah. find times where you, like, fall out of that reading habit and you have to snap back into it? Or is it no. just such an entrenched habit at this point? No, I never give up that 20 minutes every morning. But that's when I'm reading my favorite genre, British murder mysteries, usually. And so that is something I've really just, it's pure entertainment. And I am reading one now by C.S. Harris that is just, nobody's probably ever heard of her or her books, but I just really like this series. And, um, but in the, in the evenings, I'm reading, I'm still rereading our children's lit. So I've, I've been reading the Moffats. <laughs> And um, and I'm reading C.S. Lewis, and that is the thing that doesn't necessarily happen every day, especially if I'm really tired, depending on what I did for the day. I just don't need more words. Um, so then I'll go watch BritBox <laughs> <laughs> and watch a British, um, one of my favorite authors, Anne Cleves, is, has the um They've put her series on BritBox, yeah. and so I will watch those instead of reading. Which has no the words. By, by watching, to, there's no words. 
Is what you well, said. there <laughs> are words because I have to put the captioning on to understand a lot of the British accent. Oh. I really do kind of struggle sometimes with what they've said. I wish those people would learn to speak English. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. <laughs> and then um, I should be reading The Horse and His Boy because Lee's group on that tomorrow, I think, is tomorrow. And I haven't even. So you got to read The Whole Horse and His Boy tonight? <laughs> That's not going to happen. Also, not my genre. <laughs> Um, I should have started it before. See, that's when the community failed me. Well, she, well, I've I failed the community failed on that one because she asked me, "Are you going to come?" And I said, "No, oh, I no. just not." Is I anybody just, coming? Uh, she was really trying working on Mitchell, so okay. you know, Mitchell might. She get and there. Mitchell can chat. <laughs> so, Martin, I, I have probably resonate more with Paul's experience than Tanya's in that there are times where a week goes by and I realize I've filled my evenings with other things or I've been busy and I'm like, I really need to make time to read tonight. And for me, kind of the snapping to it is not usually community doesn't help me. I'll do it if I want to or not that other people aren't going to affect me, but I just need to very much make a decision to clear some time and read a book. I, I, I do that sometimes just to kind of restart and re-engage. Do you have any, or which side of the spectrum do you fall in? And when you want to read more, what do you do? Well, I don't have Farmer Paul's agrarian limitations, nor do I have Tanya's problems with the English language. <laughs> but but uh, I, I, you know, there's so many interesting things going on in the world today. Right now, my problem is just not wanting to turn the TV on and see what's going on in the Ukraine right now. That's, that's my, probably my biggest problem. But <clears throat> I, and I've mentioned before that I, I listen to most uh, novels that I read uh, in the car in, at, at a at time when there's nothing else I, I can do really. And that's, that's uh, that driving time has been great for me because I got a long drive to work and uh, there's that time there that you don't want to, yeah, the alternative is doing nothing. I mean, so you, it's it's an easy decision to make. Um, and so right now, I am uh, listening to Cousin Bet by Honoré de Balzac, who is uh, often referred to as the French Dickens, and he's every bit as good as Dickens. Yeah, so you look at me uh, when you say that. I, I mean, that's because you need to read him. Um, and he's not widely read in English anymore, it seems. But Because he's French? Be, partly because, no, well, I, he was widely read in, in So in did English he write in French? And yes, he wrote in French. These are, these are translations, but they're beautiful, beautifully done. But do you need a, to pick a particular translator? I, I, I haven't had that problem. I don't know that he's a writer who has that many var mm. variant translations. Um, but you know, you, my wife said, you know, you go to France and, uh, there's a statue in every traffic circle and there's a mm -hmm. traffic circle at every intersection and half of them are a statue of Balzac. Uh, he is revered yeah. in France. And so, um, so why aren't we reading him? Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know why he's fallen out of And you're saying right that on. he's great because he's oh just a masterclass of storytelling. Oh, oh yeah. Characters. Well, character, his characterization is just, he's got, he's, he's clicking on all cylinders in terms of plot and character and setting. He's, he's just an utterly convincing writer, very, very much like Dickens, maybe without the, the, the humor that's in Dickens that's behind everything. What time period did he write in? I think he, he's writing in the uh, late 19th century, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, Tony and I mentioned that we're both, I'm reading very slowly through Oliver Twist. It's a book I didn't mention last time I've been going through it. And Tony, you said that you're about to start Oliver Twist. I am. We're going to publish our own version because the one that we were 
selling has gone out of print. So rather than find another one, we thought we would just publish it. And so they've got it formatted. And I said, well, I need to reread Oliver Twist anyway, because I try to keep up with, you know, it's hard to remember all those years ago. So, um, so I said, well, I'll just read it and kind of proof it as I go, which doesn't, it doesn't help the reading experience when you have to read it so slowly and look for uh, typos. <laughs> but I, it's something I need to do, and it's something I will do. And I'll probably actually, um, when I finish this fun murder mystery I'm reading, um, just move to Oliver Twist because mornings are my best time as far as my brain. And if I'm going to proof while I read, that's I need to do that. So I'll take a break from my... I thought it was interesting when you mentioned that before this episode, because hopefully what we're going to talk about is, you know, the difficulty with themes in books that are potentially objectionable or, you know, difficult to handle or things that haven't aged well. Oliver Twist is a classic example of this because there's a famous Jew in the, in the, mm-hmm. the story who is the archvillain and Dickens was, it's an interesting case because he was self-conscious of this critique and he edited the book later and later iterations have less anti-Semitic content. And so it's interesting that it's obviously a classic novel that stands the test of time in terms of storytelling and characters, but one that has a, a genuinely problematic character. So what do you do with that when you're reading it with, with students? Um, that's, I think, where we're headed. But before we get there, um, I did bring down some books. We Last time we did this um, with one of the, some books in our, our science curriculum, but I grabbed the Dollar's Greek Myths. And I, the reason I wanted to grab this one and kind of talk to you guys about it is because of all the questions I've gotten here at Memorial Press about kind of the, should I read this? Not, not, is it great or how does it fit into education? But morally, is it right that I read Dollar's Greek Myths with my kids? This is the book that gets talked about because we are at a very young age, having our children read about false gods who a lot of them do lurid things and and bad things. So how do we interact with that question specifically? And Tanya, would you first just kind of tell us the role of Dallaire's in the Memorial Press curriculum so we have a big picture? Sure. So we are doing it in the third grade. In our moderated curriculum, it's third and fourth grades. And the reason for that is um, Cheryl felt, and Emily, your wife, and I just talked about this today um, when she was up at your computer. Um she came by my desk and we were talking about how difficult sixth grade is to teach for new teachers because um, there's so much information that's review. And I was telling her that the first time I taught sixth grade, I had planned because the students had done Greek myths in the third. And so I had planned to take six weeks to review it before we moved to new material. Well, within the first week, I knew that they really remembered it all and by the second week i was like there's nothing else to do here because they literally remembered all of those stories so i do think that putting it in the third grade is it's the perfect year because it's fantasy people are very concerned not so much about the content as about whether students are going to be get confused between this and yahweh um because we're also studying Christian studies. I've never, ever heard of a student that confused these stories with reality. I mean, they're so obviously fantasy. And, you know, by the time these kids are eight, they're 
they know the difference between reality and um, myth. <laughs> and so, and the, just the way we present it too. And so it the role it plays is she put it, Cheryl put it there because she felt like it was the perfect year for these fantasy stories, that they would really enjoy them and really just embrace them, and they do. And and that's proven when they get to the sixth grade and still remember them. But the, the they've got to have it in order to study all the other things that we study because of the illusions. And so it's just, it works out really well to put it there and then review it again. And then when they read Homer, they're reviewing it again. You know, it just keeps coming up. Yeah. So then, Paul, on a kind of moral, religious level, what's the benefit of knowing more about the pagans and the pagan influence on the rest of our creek? You know, Tanya's defense is that the Greek myths are a part of all of our creek. Well, what if that's a bad thing fundamentally? Sure. How would you respond to that? Well, when... Uh, I mean, we talk about studying the humanities, right? That's a, that's a term that gets kind of thrown around. And the way I've always understood the humanities is we're studying that which makes us human, right? Or And trying to understand who we are. And, and, and Greek mythology being anthropomorphic, being the men who are sort of projecting their own faults, failings, successes, triumphs on this, this – um, group of of supernatural beings in their minds was them also trying to work that out and so it's beautiful when you when you read greek mythology in the light of okay what is this what is this saying about man you get into a much deeper understanding of we're not talking about supernatural beings here we're not talking about specific angels or devils or you know the godhead we're we're talking about man trying to understand himself um, and so, you know, that's, that's, these are foundational stories that the Greeks told themselves, just like we tell our stories, ourselves stories of George Washington and his honesty with the cherry tree, right? Like, you know, did that really happen? I'm not going to say yay or nay. There are passionate people on both sides, <laughs> but it's worth the question. Did that actually happen? Right. Um, there's, there's a lot of those sort of things that we even tell ourselves. And so going, going back to a, a foundational culture, for us, the Greek culture and the, the Romans, I mean, they they took these stories and they adjusted them, right? That fit their culture with the, the things that were important to them, right? And what they felt was most important for humanity to hold up. And um, in that conversation of just sort of dealing with all of that, we get to we get to understand more who we are. Martin, I see you scribbling as though you have thoughts about this conversation. And <laughs> it's this grocery. That list. might be the case, and it might not. But uh, yeah, I'll just take the rest of the show. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, I mean these are Greek superhero movies. That's mm. what they are. I mean, and I met people who have problems reading the Greek myths, but they have no trouble with Superman sure. or Spider Man or wearing the Superman or Spider Man or, or T-shirt, yeah, right? Yeah, there, for Halloween, right? You know, yeah. So um, I think we need to realize that, as Paul said, the the Greek gods were just humans writ large. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a, a good conception of a transcendental god. That was kind of coming with Plato, but wasn't quite there yet. Um, so they're not really deities. They, they they operate more like tall tales. Mm -hmm. Okay, people have no problems with tall tales. Paul Bunyan, Pecos yeah. Bill, and yeah. all that. Um, 
And in a, a lot of those stories, they're they're just morally instructive stories. A lot of them are cautionary tales. You know, human foibles writ large. They're they're examples of what not to do. Yeah. A lot of a lot of them. And and you know, we have those. Uh, you know, Hillary Belloc wrote cautionary tales. There's a lot of lot of those that that have a, a a good practical application. You know, in your home, you don't you you want to you want to teach your children to look at certain actions and. And look down on them. That's mm-hmm. that's part of moral mm-hmm. instruction. Um, also, a- almost any argument against reading the Greek myths is an argument against fiction per se. Mm. Okay, false gods. Yeah, they're fictional characters. Right. And there are some Christian sects that sects that that um, that reject fiction altogether. Right. And, and if if that's your if you want to be consistent, that's what you'll do. I don't yeah. think that's a good position. I don't um, either, but Shane's not a fan of fiction. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. Oh, no. I, I, th- I think we now need to turn from Martin to Shane. Let's talk about this, Shane. Okay, okay, okay come I on, explain. <laughs> fiction is not my preferred genre, but I've read a lot of the great he fiction. He forces himself to read I do read. I force myself to read it because I don't want to be, as Martin would say, a half-hearted person or half, what do you say, half-sold? I, I forget, but... <laughs> You said that I was half of a person, and so I've tried to make myself read more fiction. I, I wasn't aware I did that, but yeah, but I, I'm I'm glad I did. If I did, <laughs> sorry, I interrupted. Yes, you did. I just thought maybe Shane would have something to say about fiction. Yeah, I I, I think that that the criticisms of the Greek myths are uh, really betray kind of a misunderstanding of what they are and what their function is. Yeah. So moving from fiction as um and the question of greek myths are you trying to get away from fiction i don't <laughs> i don't think most of our constituents are probably actually wrestling with this question mm-hmm. but probably more broadly people are wrestling with the question of how do i coach my children in the homeschool setting teach them um my family through reading elevated works that have things that are offensive whether that be on a thematic level that the theme of the book is something that's wrong or there's actual elements of the book that are offensive to them. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how much we as, you know, the talking heads can arbitrate what people should or should not be offended by. But I think we can speak a little bit to how to think about helping students to work through difficult texts, things like anything, you know, uh, Tom Sawyer um, or, Oliver Twist or King Arthur, King Arthur, Canterbury Tales. Right. Like these are difficult materials that are in our curriculum and have things that are offensive. I think I would like to say at the beginning, um, before we get more intellectual about this, that Greek myths isn't for every third grade student. There are students who are much more sensitive than as younger students and need a little more maturity before they're ready for this or even famous men of Rome with the violence or, you know, I think my point at the beginning would be, you know, your child. And so you need to do what you need to use your own judgment and not just let us say, okay, this is a third grade book because it may not be. And so I just, yeah, it's a great point. I just, People, not everybody's ready for um, at a at the same age for questionable topics or topics that require a little more maturity. I've noticed in our classrooms 
years ago, like at the beginning, before I was even teaching, at the very beginning, um, actually Lee was teaching and I was watching with Cheryl, which that must have been nerve wracking for her. Um, but she was teaching Christian studies and in the Golden Children's Bible, they always, it refers to a donkey as ass. And the students literally were just reading through. I remember just noting it at the time and not paying any attention at all because that word had just been explained to them that it was a word for donkey and it was treated seriously but matter of factly. And so they just they just read on and there was nothing offensive about it or no because no major attention had been drawn to it. And that's that's a phenomenal point. And the reason I brought up King Arthur is because one school that we worked with that they they took all of our curriculum kind of wholesale K through six I think something like that and the first or second time we went up and visited them you know it was halfway through the year and they were like King Arthur caught us by surprise and and we had this conversation about you know King Arthur with Lancelot and Guinevere and and you know and and it wasn't from the school's perspective they didn't have a problem teaching King Arthur. But the problem was they had implemented all the curriculum. The teachers were were uh, drowning in new content, so they hadn't pre-read. So the teachers weren't prepared to deal with it matter-of-factly like That's that. Right. And so when the student was like, "Wait, what's why is Lancelot doing this? Like, why is Guinevere doing this?" And you know, whereas we would just say, you know. Uh, a wife should be faithful to her husband, a husband should be faithful to his wife, and you move on. But that's because we've thought about it right. ahead of time. But if your class, if you're reading it for the first time with your class, that is a problem because yeah. you aren't prepared. Right. right. But you, that's, and it's that matter of fact, you know, perspective of it. It says, this is what the text says, you know, this is what's going on, this is what this means. And we move on. We, we're not dwelling on the objectionable content. But, we, you know, as we get older, we may have to explain, like, this is why this is in here. You know, I recently had that that um, experience in the Island Academy with Canterbury Tales. Canterbury is a good example. Yeah. So yeah. when we, years ago, when my um, oldest son was in seventh or eighth grade and they were reading through the Canterbury Tales and they had just, we hadn't published the stories that we wanted so they just had an, an anthology of the tales, and and they chose, Cheryl had chosen the ones that they were going to read, and she told the English teacher, we are not going to do the Miller's Tale. Well, the teacher stands up there and says, okay, we're going to read this story and this story and this one, but we can't read the Miller's Tale. <laughs> so what do you think everybody did that night? Mm -hmm. So in the car, I did a carpool with several students in that class. And they were all talking. They had all read the Miller's Tale the night before <laughs> because they were told not to. I mean, that's the, where you're not treating it as matter of fact. Just just don't, you, you know, don't dwell on it. Yeah. Yeah. I think you bring up the both of you are speaking to the fact that you have to know you have to know these books because many of these books, all of the plays by Shakespeare, Gwen yeah. Green Knight. Uh, Canterbury Tales, they all have things that I do sometimes wonder if every person teaching them has done the due diligence to right. prepare students right. for and just speaks to knowing the curriculum. You need to know it before you, you teach do. it, whether you're a parent or a teacher. And you need to teach it the same way that you teach David and Bathsheba. You teach it as morally wrong and a mistake. And I think, you know, King Arthur is an example. It's obvious by the end of the book the huge mistake that affected their lives so drastically all of them yeah. and it's a great learning I, tool i think that's a great point right like we hold up these great works the Iliad, the odyssey right like you should learn from these 
and to have the freedom to say that is inappropriate action. Right. right. Like it, it just because we're saying you need to read this great book doesn't mean that every character in that book is great. Right. You, you, you having the bad characters in it is what makes it human. Right. And that's what we learn from. No, yeah. he's writing again. He is. I do. I see that. I, I'd be interested more in his speaking because this is a podcast and not an email. <laughs> he's oh, working sorry, on his <laughs> next article for Dana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because she's on me all the time. But uh, yeah, I, I think that this is an issue of literary maturity. Okay, uh, do we expect our children never to encounter evil in what they read? We have to train them how to deal with that. And you know, just as I said that that any argument against the Greek myths is also an argument against fiction in general. Um, any argument uh, about any any argument about uh, the uh, the inappropriate material in the fiction we do read is also an argument against reading the Bible because it, as you mentioned, because it is in there. How are we going to train them to deal with that? Well, we need to, to acclimate them to it, you know? And so how else, what's a better way to introduce them to the, to the issue of faithfulness and unfaithfulness than in something like King Arthur, where it's put in a, in a way that they can, start to understand that if they haven't encountered it before. Um, you know, a lot of these issues came up in the whole debate over the Harry Potter books. Uh, and and I got I got two questions from a lot of parents. Are, are these dangerous? And I would say, are these books dangerous to read? I said, yes. And furthermore, all books are dangerous in some way. And furthermore, the better they are, the more dangerous they are because they can capture you. The problem with Harry Potter was not not the the magic in Harry Potter. It was in the fact that children became obsessed with it because it's the only thing they ever read. Okay, mm -hmm. so my 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 in my explanation, I said, look, uh, if if you read a lot of books, any one book is going to be less dangerous. Uh, you know, literature is dangerous except when taken in large doses. It inoculates you against any one book that you might become obsessed with. Uh, and the other, of course, was the magic in there. We talked about that, but the, the magic in there. And, you know, I had a guy come up to me at uh, the North Carolina homeschool conference, and he, he looked down, he saw The Hobbit. He said, of course, that's, that's, that's not a good, that's got magic in it. And I said, well, you know, I, Arthur C. Clarke had a, had a great remark about this. He said, any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. So any argument against magic is also an argument against technology. So you, you, need, to be, you need to understand what the implications of your position is on these things because there's, I don't know how my microwave oven works. It's like Presto. It's interesting. I don't know if 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 I knew it, maybe that would be a bit. But it's magic to me. Oh, it works because you put your button on the, your finger on the start button. Yeah, and it turns on. I yeah, could explain it I to know. you. I know, and that's magical because I don't know how it <laughs> operates. Right. So I. But in in C.S. Lewis talks about this in the abolition of man. He says he says, uh, you know, uh, magic and technology are very closely allied in in, in the same way. So. Um, so, but I do think that 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 these obje objectionable things, whether it's you know uh, not sexually explicit, but something having to you know just in it dealing with inappropriate behavior, or or magic or anything like that, it's just a matter of literary maturity. If you are if you are widely read, you are inoculated 
against all that stuff. They are going to face these issues at some point. How are you going to acclimate them to it? They're going to be reading Shakespeare. They're going to be reading some of these things, you know, a lot of modern fiction. There's all kinds of things in there. Mm. How are you going to prepare them for it? And the the one answer we know is wrong is we're, we're just not going to read any of it ever because you're not preparing your children for dealing with the world. Yeah, it's so much better to have children experience this in the home and be able to talk about yes. it and say how do i how am i supposed to understand this another to advantage to world. reading in a community yeah then mm-hmm. send them on the world where they haven't seen any of it and they don't know how to deal with it right and but i do want to clarify when martin says in liter, literary maturity like yes there's there's a there's an element that as the child gets older, they can deal with more things, right, thematically. But we have to recognize that the risk of being a dead horse, young kids, it can go right over their heads and that's perfectly okay, mm-hmm. yes. right? It doesn't mean that you have to only present that which is perfectly pure to your young kids until they have the maturity to understand it. But you realize that, you know... It, it may go right over their heads and you may not That's have to right. address and it. And some mm-hmm. I've talked to parents before who struggled with King Arthur in fifth or sixth grades because they were over explaining mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you don't need to over explain. Yeah, they usually and don't the even want to know. They Bathsheba. Yeah. You don't right, have right. to over explain that. Right. Mm-hmm. Just they know it's wrong. They know it's a betrayal, mm-hmm. but they don't need to know the explicit details of, <laughs> of what makes it wrong. And they don't, they don't care. They don't even think that they're not understanding. No. So we have, uh, you know, as a curriculum provider, chosen certain books that have objectionable content in them to be in our curriculum. Mm-hmm. So defend that choice. Why? Why do we deem it necessary to have these books and not just choose to, you know, hermetically seal off our children in our curriculum from anything that could be objectionable? Your turn towards me, like you want me to talk. Yeah. What do you think? I. You know. Uh, any any book that doesn't have bad characters in it isn't real. I mean, I think if we're, if if we're real, if we're after preparing uh, children, what is it was I think it was C.S. Lewis. I don't know who said this, but right, education is about preparing adults. It's not about remaining as a child. I don't know. You all can correct me if there's something. I don't know. You know what the quote I'm talking about? Uh, I don't Roughly? know. Roughly? No. Okay, geez. Okay. Well, it sounds maybe, like maybe one that attributes to me. But <laughs> the whole point of you have to, the, the whole point of, of education is to be prepared to be an adult. If you never experience, if you if you don't experience the real world in a, in a controlled environment, then you're never going to be ready for the real world. Well, and, and, and if you if you say we're not going to give them any stories where there's evil in them, then what you're saying is I'm going to give them bad stories. Uh, Wendell Berry, uh, when he uh, taught uh, here at Highlands Latin School one time teaching a couple Shakespeare plays, he, he, he was trying to explain this idea of good and evil. A story requires a conflict. Any narrative requires a, and it's a conflict between good and evil. So Wendell goes up to the board and he writes this line down the middle and he writes good on one side and bad on the other and points to the line and says, this is where a story happens. And if you, you can't have a good story without a conflict, and a conflict requires a contest between good and evil, which means you're going to have to deal with evil in some sense. And it's just a matter of how it's portrayed. As long as evil is portrayed as evil, you're, you're, you're probably okay, right? And as long as good is portrayed as good. Let me say that there's, I don't know, maybe time's going to challenge me on this, but, but I feel, maybe Martin will, maybe you will, I don't know. I'd like but, to, but <laughs> yeah, after your remark, 
<laughs> him not liking fiction. That, that would be me. I, I feel like there's we live in a world and in a society, right? Christian America likes to think that we in, in some we have this sort of underlying assumption. I think that we are perfect, right? Or or not that we are perfect, but like we we would like to pretend that we're perfect. And when I was dealing with my, this whole issue in the Online Academy about the Canterbury Tales. Where I was, I had to sit down and read the tale, right? Which I hadn't done in a long time. And I, I was so taken with the idea of a society that was like earthy to the extreme, but that was struggling to live faith at the same time. And it felt so much more real to me than one in which I try to pretend that, that, there's never any evil in my life. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so it, giving that sort of picture of a world, I mean, that's why we read fantasy, right? Because there's in, in fantasy, there, it's, it's a different world, but it helps us see our own world and where there's, there's goblins and there's orcs and there's these bad things. Right. And, and maybe like Bilbo were tempted to put that ring on again and again and again. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's in that struggle that that we really find our humanity i think and so having you know having books that we read that our children read that is that has that struggle um i think is really really helping us connect to what it means to live in a fallen world in a fallen world where we're struggling to 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 live that which we feel called to live in faith that that's I think where there's a, there's a great beauty there that when we just read for entertainment we're not we're not taking the time to think about that but I think it's I think it's deeply important to the the upbringing of a child yeah uh, virtue ethics is all about this it uh, it's it's you know uh, books like after virtue and they're they're basically saying we we are in a you know we need to view life as a drama. As, as a story in which we're a character, and that's the only context in which morality even makes sense. Uh, we're all really in a quest story. We're, we're, we're in a hero tale, and we, want, we should want to be the hero. We should not want to be the villain. I mean, I think a lot of people who are, you know, uh, you know inveterate criminals, they just were never taught this. They were never taught the attractiveness of the good so evil becomes attractive to them. And if they had, if they had been, you know, if they had been readers and they could read about, you know, these, these tales and whether it's Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or, or, or whatever, if they could just see the glory of the good, they would be inspired differently. Instead, they get inspired by the wrong people. Um, so I think a large part of this is just seeing yourself as a, as a, as a good character in a story. So right now we've talked largely of elements that exist within stories that are potentially objectionable, but sometimes there are great books and I'm, I'm struggling to think of one in our curriculum necessarily, but there are, there are definitely great books out there that have an evil point. They are expertly crafted and well-written, but mm. the, the thing they're saying is bad. So I'm just thinking of the art the portrait of an artist as a young man by James Joyce, an expertly crafted novel. Um, but the point of it is that there's nothing, there is nothing that will fulfill. There is nothing that is good. 
it's, well, it's, it's, I think it's, that's for college students. Yeah. Well, it is, but, but it, yeah, it, it's, it's nihilistic. And, yeah. you know, I, 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 you know, you, you feel if you know literature and you hear about James Joyce all the time, that you're supposed to like James Joyce. I have tried so hard <laughs> and I just can't, I'm, I'm sorry. And, and, you know, you, the Dubliners is, is under, at least understandable portrait of an artist, young man is next one is less understandable. And, and then there's Ulysses, you know, which people are talking about as the greatest novel of the century. It's almost un- incomprehensible. And you, then you get to Finnegan's Wake and you can't understand anything. And it, it, is this good? Uh, I mean, it's a good thing, I guess, that this guy who's writing these novels that are kind of subversive that you can't understand. And we wouldn't want people. <laughs> you have to too much hope them, in your heart right? for, for him. I guess. I, I, I mean, this is the moment where I, I want to bring up Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Right. And oh, remember when that, we read that, that book we read? Yes, that book we what was uh, Love in the Time of Cholera? Yes. Was it fiction? Not, not probably fiction. Not recommended. <laughs> Shane, that's another one on your but list. We yeah. have to read. different yeah. feelings about. We it. did, and it was the the language was beautiful. It was beautifully written. It dealt with some very objectionable things. So it's, I do not recommend it. But what I felt was interesting because this brings when you brought up Ulysses or James Joyce, Martin, your take on that book was that it was a critique of postmodernism that was a critique of of modernism critique of classicism i mean you you basically and i and i can't explain it but i want you to if you remember well, well yeah it. love in the time of cholera uh uh uh, uh, Marquez, uh, G- Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Garcia Marquez. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we did have a uh, disagreement about this in the office because the way another one of our uh, compatriots viewed it was that that what was happening in the book was good. And Cheryl, actually, Cheryl Lowe, our founder, read this and and she saw immediately what I saw, which is if this is not, th- this would be a terribly evil book. And I don't think Marquez is evil um, or it's a satire. And I thought clearly it was a satire. I mean, there's a scene at the end where he and this woman who he's finally gotten together with uh, after all these years, after a, a lifetime, really, and part of one of them, and they're floating. They, 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 earlier in the book, they've gone up this river, and it's lush, and it's this jungle, and there's birds. And, and by the end of the book, it's all been deforested, and it's, it's, it's this wasteland. And they're floating out in the river, and they want to be alone, so they announce that there's cholera on the boat. So people will stay away from them. And my response to that was, yeah, there's cholera on the boat. There's moral cholera. There is a moral disease on that boat. And I have to believe that Marquez thought that. If he didn't, then he's an evil person. And I, yeah. from what I know of him, he's not. So, and, you know. and, and it's it's that kind of book. I brought that up because it's that kind of book that, you know, that when it is so, I, I mean- Martin felt it was evident what the author was going for. I think Tanya and I were equally repulsed about what was going on. So we were like, we have to read it in the way Martin is reading it. Right. But, you know, other people can take, turn a blind eye to that and say, well, no, it's good for these reasons. And when we have that level of ambiguity in a book, we are not putting that in our curriculum. That's oh, right. sure. No, that's, you know, so you, I think you're right that you can't find anything like that in our curriculum. And that's, but, but what our curriculum does is provide the basis for reading of literature later where you can view a book and mm-hmm. discuss it this way. Once I think that's important to point out. Mature enough to yes. handle yes. it. Yes. Yeah, it establishes that foundation. Because I, I asked the question because I was thinking of that book, uh, the book I mentioned, Arts of a Portrait of a Young Man, uh, Portrait of an Artist of a Young Man, mm-hmm. um, This Side of Paradise by 
Fitzgerald, very similar, very mm-hmm. similar. And for b- both of those books, I, I really enjoyed, but in both of them, what the author is doing is saying is nihilism there. He's wor- walking through different ways that they find, tried to attempt to find meaning and it came up lacking. Mm-hmm. And there's something that if you have hope that you come to the end of it and you see, you know, there's a part of reality that feels meaningless and hopeless. Chesterton makes the same kind of progression in the man who is Thursday. But the difference between Chesterton and those two is that at the end, Thursday comes in and says, have you drank of the cup that I drank of? You know, there, <laughs> there's hope. And so these authors do sometimes lead us to a very clear introspection that we need Jesus. Yes. For. And this is a particular problem with modernist literature, modernist literature. And J- James Joyce's Ulysses is sort of considered the first great modernist novel. But, you know, you, you, Hemingway and Faulkner and and these these are all modernist authors. And if I could recommend a book, which I think is the best book on modernist literature, it, it's, it's, it's all on modernist literature and it's a, a way of viewing it. Um, and it is by William Barrett, who was one of the great commentators on literature and philosophy in the 50s and 60s in this country. He wrote for the Atlantic Magazine. He was a professor of philosophy. He wrote a book called Time of Need. And he goes over Faulkner and Hemingway and and uh, and James Joyce, and and gives you a perspective on what these guys are doing, what they may be doing well or not. But it's the one of the wisest books I've ever read. Yeah. So maybe to wrap up, um, we have teachers and expert homeschool educators. Can you each give one kind of piece of advice to families that are trying to? wrestle with this issue. What is just one piece of advice that you've gathered in your time of teaching books that have potentially difficult material that they can take with them to help them to think better about their students reading these books? Um, the um, only thing going through my head is pre-read the book. I mean, that's, that's number one, pre-read the book. And because, uh, you know, regardless, I mean, because sometimes you hit these objectionable things halfway through the book and you don't know where it's ending up. Right. And so you don't know how to help your child through it. If you knew the end and how it's going to end up, you, you can very clearly, you know, you can tell your student, just hang on, it'll make sense at the end, you know, or, or whatever it is. But if you don't know, if you don't know the storyline, if it's not fresh, then you're going to have issues. Know your students. And when they're ready for it or not ready for it and don't feel like you have to do it just because it's in our curriculum, um, do pre-read it. But if you've pre-read it and thought, my child's not ready to deal with this, my child doesn't need to be doing Shakespeare in the eighth grade, then put it off till the 10th. And I would just say, um, you know, within certain bounds in terms of what should and shouldn't be read, uh, read widely. Read widely in classic children's literature. That will enable you to read and deal with these other more, you know, complex, mature issues that we've been talking about. And you're also going to, I mean, you're going to hit all these themes in history also. Absolutely, yeah. So they're going to get them, the themes, but somehow when they're fictionalized, they become much more dramatic. And I think the characters maybe are more, uh, more real to them. And so it makes it a little more difficult. Yeah, certainly a difficult topic, but I think each of you have given really good pieces of advice and it's been an interesting conversation. Thanks for having it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, 
consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit memoriapress.com. To connect with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.